0: Thank you for joining us today at the Miniature Wargaming Labs podcast. Today, we're doing a spotlight on a Wargamer out there in Nevada. Uh, We'll refer to him as Bob. Bob, welcome to the channel. Thank you. Now, Bob, um, you were one of the individuals when I put out a call for questions out on Facebook. um, You had a question responded back and you actually talked about your Wargaming collection and showed pictures. And it was an astounding collection is like some someday I hope to grow my collection to that size <laughs> after my wife leaves me <laughs> and I can, I can surround myself in little toys. But well, how you're did, a
1: lot younger, you got a lot more time. <laughs> well,
0: um, how did you get started in Wargaming?
1: You know, it, it, it goes back to when I was in high school. Um, I always have been an avid student of history. I think is the way to put it my father had an enormous history collection of books and i think i started at a young age and read my way through them and all of a sudden i found this company called avalon hill and they put out some early war games and of course i immediately scarfed them up and at that point i was addicted and fell in love <laughs> and so i played everything they had and everything that i could get my hands on most of it solo because um, it was not a hobby in high school that most of my friends had any interest in whatsoever at all. So it took me a while before I actually found people that actually had my same interest and could actually play the same games. Um,
0: I, I, I think I found that, like, with role-playing games, it's an easier sell because there's no effort up front. But with wargaming, the other person has to be ju- almost just as serious as you to put the exactly. time in. Absolutely. So once you found that group, how did it develop?
1: It, it developed for a while, very slowly, because right after I graduated from high school, I got drafted into the United States Army and uh, sort of went off and, and did Army stuff and really didn't do anything in wargaming until I got into college after I got out of the Army. And in college, I got some friends of, and to know some people that were you know historians and, and avid history buffs. And. One of them one day said, you know, I've got this collection of miniatures. I have this English Civil War 15 millimeter army. Would you like to play miniatures? I said, I have no idea how to play. Well, sure, why not? And that got me hooked. Right was there. that
0: your was that your first step outside like the Avalon Hill series? Yes. Okay. Yes, sure was. That's As a... a
1: kid, I collected the Aerofix, you know, figures. Oh, okay. Figures. We did little games with them, but it wasn't really wargaming. With any rules or anything, it was just having plastic figures, and I've always been addicted to toy soldiers, so that easily led me into miniatures.
0: So we have right there. So historical English Civil War, fifteen millimeter scale. Um, When did you start branching out? Because I think once you pick a line,
1: I read Chandler's Campaigns of Napoleon, which was my first book. On the Napoleonic Wars. I now have a library of probably 80 or 90 books on the <laughs> Napoleonic Wars. So it was an expensive, you know, uh, initial read. And from that, I said, wow, I wonder if you can play Napoleonic miniatures. And lo and behold, there were people out there that were playing Napoleonic miniatures. I think the rules at the time were Empire One. Um, I, that's the first ones I started playing. And that got me hooked into playing Napoleonics. And of course, that I had to have my own miniatures. So I started to buy them. And I got involved with some friends of mine that were in Rao Partha back in the days when Rao Partha was, you know, doing miniatures. And I got a summer job from college being at the midnight caster for Rao Partha. Oh wow. And I got my miniatures at cost. So all of a sudden I started to develop this, this collection of Napoleonic miniatures. And it has grown from those days to now over 11,000 15 millimeter Napoleonics.
0: Well, so my first miniatures that I bought um, were Ra'lpartha. So Battletech, the old uh, metal ones. Right. And um, so the TSR, Dungeons and Dragons did a 15 millimeter scale war game that Ralph Partha supported. Um, battle system.
1: Yes, I, I remember so, that. that. You're making so, me go back in time here, but yes, I remember that. The,
0: the, that was my first legitimate war game was um, Battletech and Battle System because that's what my store carried. And so um, there's like a whole rack of like the Ralpartha stuff. And so I, I want to play this game. So I started pulling them out.
1: Well, through my friends at Ralpartha back in the days when I was, you know, in college. Um, they got involved in doing a lot of fantasy miniatures of course of course they made a lot of fantasy miniatures and uh, uh, tom meyer the sculptor for Ralph parthen was just an incredible sculptor at the time he came up with their initial line of 25 millimeter medievals and they were like state of the art nobody had anything close to what tom could do and through him i got playing you know 25 millimeter medievals and fantasy and i think the first fantasy rules i played were the, the your Gygax is chainmail, you know. Oh, yeah. Precursors. Well, I still have yeah. an original copy of chainmail signed by Gary, sitting on my shelf, and I'm told that's worth like four <laughs> or five hundred dollars. Of course, I'm never going to sell it. No, it's hard for me to part with stuff. I'm actually selling some um, Napoleonic's now because I just have so many. I, it, as I told you in the interview the there, I, I just finished writing a set of rules for Napoleonic's. Um, I'm an avid game designer, and I've been involved in a lot of other sets that are out there. And eh, we're going to get them published at some point in the next year or two. I think maybe we'll see. But their scale is one to a hundred, so I can do big battles with them, and I don't seem to need to put three hundred thousand Russians on the table. So <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of a few that I don't need.
0: Well, uh, so what? We, looking at how you approach the hobby, so you. You obviously played historical. You've played fantasy. Is there like a balance that you have? Like one, like when you look at your collection, how do you break it out between, you know,
1: I would well, let's say, say old that,
0: fantasy, sci-fi versus historical?
1: I would say the majority of my collection is historical. Now that said, I have an enormous collection of Star Wars miniatures that has just sort of accumulated over the years. And I actually just pulled them out of the boxes a couple of months ago to put them up on the shelves. And I was shocked how many I actually had. <laughs> I did not realize that I had 1,525 millimeter Star Wars figures. Oh my God.
0: That's the early um, 2000s ones, right?
1: Yeah, and okay. they're older ones, You know, they're newer ones, they're plastic ones. I have a, you know, a collection and had friends of mine were trading me them for other things that I had. So I just accumulated this enormous collection. Not that I'm ever going to probably ever use the whole thing on the field at any one given time. But I got into historical miniatures, believe it or not, to study history. And I felt by doing accurate rules on accurate terrain, you could actually get a feel and a study of how the battle actually went and learn from that much more than just reading it in a book. And But then I enjoy pushing lead around the table too and rolling dice and, and getting beat or winning. Winning is of little concern to me. I just enjoy pushing lead around the table and having a good time with friends.
0: Well, I, I found I, I found the game goes much easier if you don't win, like everyone has.
1: Yeah, everybody has a good time, that's yeah. the key. <laughs> well, of course, it's more fun to win than lose, but only a little bit.
0: You know, so this, this is a debate. Since you're in the historical side and you're doing, there's that chance for reenactment. Um, I know uh, Richard from Two Fat Lardies and the guys that do um, Wargaming Soldiers and Strategies, anyone who does historical Wargaming talks about modeling versus simulation. Correct. Of, do you want to play a rule set that allows you to do a battle where it's gonna repeat the historical outcome or is it gonna be something where it's a what if? What if that battalion held at Auschwitz and like you pushed forward so where, where did you feel, like, did you want to simulate to replicate it or just model the force disposition?
1: I'm more into simulating it, but that said, I thoroughly enjoy doing a what if by changing parameters of the scenario, changing parameters of the game. A good friend of mine, Bruce Weigel, has written a phenomenal set of rules for Franco-Prussian War and all of the periods in and around the Franco-Prussian War pre and after. And he loves to change the scenario a little bit with a non-historical deployments just to see what would have happened or if these reinforcements didn't make it to the table or they got there sooner. And, And I like doing that on occasion just to see what if. Yeah, and that is an interest, but the rules that I wrote for Napoleonics are designed to be a simulation designed to be as accurate as possible to recreate the battle and we just played Borodino uh, on my table just a few months ago and we I think almost recreated the battle exactly down to the casualty level plus or minus five percent and I was very pleased with that.
0: Okay now because the idea but I think with some of the historical reenactments is um a lot of times i, I used to really like the military history magazine and they like to cover a lot of like the seven years war um Correct. and there was a particular line in there um that bothered me and so it was some battle some Duke put a battalion in the center of the formation and the battalion broke and that lost the battle and the writer that put happens. it happens yes and that happens but the writer said that the, the, the general in charge made a mistake. And I was like, but what if it held? Then he would have been hailed as a genius. Exactly. So it's like, so what What did he know that he thought that battalion would hold? It, it's like that, um, lead, the roll of the dice, right there. Literally- It has
1: to be the element of randomness. And that's what the dice does for you. Yeah. We're getting ready to play Waterloo again on my table on April the 10th. and. It will be done on as accurate terrain as I can put together. And we're going to see what happens. You know, and Waterloo is probably the most written about battle of the Napoleonic Wars. So most gamers that have any interest in history at all have read what happened to Waterloo. And they know the mistakes that the French made in the battle and will most not likely make those same mistakes in the game. So I think there is an opportunity in this battle to see the French actually win the battle. We'll see. That's, that, to me, is going to be the most interesting part of the game. While I'm going to run the game and not actually push lead, it'll be interesting to see that if the French do not recreate the errors in Napoleon and Ney and, and his generals made at Waterloo, can they win?
0: Well, will be, be determined. That, that's very similar to like the uh, Prussian general staff school, where you go away for three years and play war games every <laughs> yeah. day. <laughs> just so you get a feel for what works and what doesn't. I
1: volunteer I'll do that <laughs> like, uh,
0: uh, I, I'm sure the American War College in Carlisle is nothing like that there's a friend
1: uh, of mine who went through that and he said that there was a lot of simulation and he he thoroughly enjoyed it he actually finished as a civilian one of the few civilians to ever go through that course at the top of the class but
0: my issue with like a uh, work any of the war colleges in National Defense University, when you compare it to the Prussian, the, the Prussian was if you fail, you're done. In um, the American system oh, I, don't think every, I
1: want my career to be, yeah, I have to roll a six here, I have to roll a six. Oh, well, no,
0: I didn't do you, it. You know, you had to show a mastery for your craft. The um, especially the National Defense University, that seems more like a club activity. I think it's more important how you do on the basketball team at, at Fort McNair in DC. Like, you know, yes. making sure you join the basketball team and you play well is way more important than your studies. I <laughs> live what I've seen
1: for a long time in the DC area, so I understand the DC mentality. And when I retired, I got, I was gone. <laughs> I went west.
0: <laughs> so I, so I, I used to live in the DC area too. We've we've talked about that. But mm-hmm. so, what was your store out there? Just gonna what what was your lo- friendly local game store?
1: There were several of them. Um, There was one right in Ashburn and God's sake, I'm not gonna remember the name of it. And it ended up closing. And then there was another one over in Chantilly. And again, it's been a lot of years and I'm old. I'm not gonna remember the name of it, but I had two. But for the most part, I spent, I used to, I'm an avid convention goer. at least I was in those days. I went to cold wars, fall in and historic on religiously every year. And I did a lot of my purchasing and a lot of my buying actually at the cons, either in the flea markets or you know through dealers I knew. And I got to know Todd Fisher fairly well. And He used to run a store out in Chicago that I occasionally would go out just to go to his store. And he gave me good deals. So that was a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> so how about something we haven't explained um, is how, how big is your collection? I think you gave me like a quick inventory of um, what your gaming space your collection and how you store it, because I think you I from, from pure it, acquisition, you are at the top. Like you're you're a tier I one. Probably
1: and as I said, I did an inventory on my Napoleons just recently, and I've got between eleven and twelve thousand, just a fifteen millimeter. <laughs> and I have an enormous collection of fifteen millimeter Civil War, an enormous collection of fifteen millimeter engines, an enormous collection of fifteen millimeter World War II vehicles, armies. You know, Japanese Russian, British American, Germans, uh, French, every major combatant I can put on the field. It The scale I play is one stand equals a squad and one vehicle is one vehicle. I can put regiments out there on the field uh, for that. I have 25 millimeter medievals, 25 millimeter fantasy, starships, Fantasy, science fiction, Star Wars. I estimate I'm somewhere between thirty and thirty-five thousand figures total.
0: But so your gay your space that you've dedicated to it. Can you describe that?
1: Yeah, I, I it is it's a large room. It's it's in Vegas. We don't do basements. The ground is made of concrete. <laughs> I,
0: I found the same thing when I moved to Albuquerque because no
1: basements so in Maryland, in, in Ashburn, yeah. Virginia. I had an enormous basement, you know, and I and I miss that hardly because of the storage. I have room in my war game room for a 12 foot by six foot table that I can subdivide any which way I want. I have room for shelves all the way around the tables that hold 90% of my miniatures are now displayed in shelving cabinets. So I can- That's the picture
0: you sent me. That was like, I, there are stores that don't have a space like that. <laughs> no,
1: they're not. And for the law, And storage space is, The number one issue. Underneath my 12 foot by 6 foot table, I store terrain boards because I have nowhere else to put them in the garage. So just recently, if I was whining to a friend and said, I'm going to have storage. He said, why don't you put an extra shelf in all your cabinets, two extra shelves. I looked at it and said, I can do that. (laughs) So all of a sudden, I got more figures up on the wall. And I have enough room in there to do darn near and with the terrain that i build and all the terrain i have i can do darn near anything i want to do and make it look
0: good well so you mentioned terrain building so when you look at like there's different aspects of the hobby so there's buying miniatures that's a Mm -hmm. fun part just going to the conventions and just going down the the table
1: oh yeah
0: (laughs) yeah so i I will tell you the last time uh, i drive to dc now in new york for work um, when I've got to go out there just cause I don't, I have some issues. I had issues with flying, just people coughing you and sneezing. Room. Yeah. It's a, and hate it's hate like, it. it's faster, but I can drive across and I can hit small local stores on yes. my route out there.
1: What a great then, idea. I mean,
0: <laughs> so I drive across the country, stopping at little local stores because you can find like these real rural areas where you find out of print stuff. That's what been a phenomenally on us.
1: good idea. And I'm so, gonna try to go to Historicon this summer, if they have Historicon this yeah. summer. We'll see. And what a great idea. I'm retired. Well, right. my, what a great when idea. I,
0: when I came back and unloaded my car <laughs> I stood there, as I have a three-car garage bay, and I uh, basically parked my car in one bay and the third bay that's empty. I filled up with boxes, I unloaded for my car.
1: <laughs> I'd like to say I don't do that, but we have a three car garage that we can get one car in because of me. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. All
0: right, so there's the buying side, the assembly, the painting, the playing, and also there's the other side that goes with it. So you made the point to me earlier that you are really hardcore and good at making terrain is that is that the part of the hobby that appeals to you most out of the others
1: actually it does i consider myself a adequate war game level painter of miniatures although i've gotten better over the years and now with some of the washes and dips they have out there it actually makes me look like a professional painter which i'm not (laughs) so a good friend of mine john hill he was the original writer of squad leader wrote johnny reb across a deadly field. John was probably the most knowledgeable person I've ever met on the American Civil War. I was his historical consultant on the Johnny Reb Rules and across the deadly field. And John was also a superb terrain builder and really taught me a lot of really interesting, good techniques. I'm not an artist. I'm an engineer. I do not initially come up with these techniques of how you use terrain but if I see it once, I've got it and I can make it better. So I got into making terrain. And I got into the point of actually selling the terrain at Historicon as a dealer, where I'd make small pieces of terrain, you know, $20, $30 pieces, cornfields, wheat fields, hills, you name it. Oh, I build boards. Uh, i would built enough boards that I don't even room to store any boards anymore (laughs) I did first I built board uh eight by six first day of Gettysburg I did an eight by six the red October steelworks at Stalingrad and that took me six months to finish and that's how detailed that was that was the most detailed most difficult piece of terrain I built everything from scratch all the buildings all the terrain all the rails and then I cast molds of them and cast them out of water putty and and everything, and I I just have gotten to the point where I really like to do that. You know, where I take the uh, hard cell foam and I sculpt the the actual contour lines actually in that and lay that out, then I'll take water putty and go over that, then I'll take flocking and put paint down and put the flocking down, add more with spray glue, seal the whole thing, lay the roads down, drill little holes in them to put the trees in with little white, you know, pieces of pipes so the trees can come out and put in, Okay, all these techniques. I've learned how to do from other people.
0: So The so the thing I found terrain is terrain is the thing that makes So when you lay out your board. So I use a (laughs) lot of mats. Okay, just for storage purposes. Okay. And then you put terrain on it and you put your army on it terrain for anyone walking by is what sets a normal table, apart from an outstanding table.
1: Exactly. It's eye so. candy to a certain point. I call it sometimes, you know, we're gaming porn. Almost. <laughs> People will come <laughs> by and just, oh my God, how did you do this? And you know, I'd say I'd love to tell you, but it's really involved. You know, catch me later at the bar. Or we'll have a drink, and I'll tell you how to do it. But oh. it 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 just it makes it come alive. It just leaps out at you and says, play with me.
0: The the thing I've found, though, is with terrain, um, I think like the classic for kids, like starting out in the early days of War Game was just to throw, like, was it H.G. Wells' Little Wars out there? Just throw some mm-hmm. books down, pile up some blankets, exactly. take the old 54-millimeter uh, tin soldiers and push them around. That doesn't really give you the immersive illusion out there. It does not. if you want... To do it right, you're looking at doubling your storage requirements.
1: I'd say tripling. <laughs> Almost, yeah.
0: <laughs> For what you need, um, especially once you change scales. So I I have a lot of like six millimeter Battletech, 15 millimeter Team Yankee, bunch of different 28 millimeter from historic to modern wargaming to sci fi, fantasy, futuristic. And then um, there are some scales that push into the 32, 35, or even 40 millimeter ranges. And so it's like, you really can't support terrain for each one of those ranges, each one of those themes, unless you've got like a warehouse. So how do you manage that?
1: Uh, Not easily. (laughs) I try to make stuff as modular as possible. It can be used through different periods. For example, I'll make wood pieces to be used for 15 millimeter, and they can also be used for 25 millimeters. I try to do a happy medium between that. Okay. Now, I'm just now getting into 28 millimeter Warlord plastic American War of Independence, and like anything else, I don't do anything half measures. So I'm probably going to end up painting 1,500 figures at least of this, and I realize that I don't have a lot of 25 millimeter terrain. So now I'm going to have to build a bunch of 25 millimeter cornfields, wheat fields, stone walls, hedges, and things like that. And I'm going to have to have a discussion with my wife where I'm going to put this stuff. I don't know the answer to that yet.
0: So, well, something I wanted to ask you about with the terrain, because when you're doing um, 28 millimeter games, a lot of it is actually like the big trend now is skirmish.
1: Correct. Like
0: platoon side skirmish or even squad level skirmish games mm-hmm. with individual control.
1: And, and that's now, got its own appeal. I like that.
0: Well, you know, the 28 millimeter size terrain, um, since we do a lot of 3D printing, there's even um, the company that does 40 millimeter scale. They actually do the terrain at a 28 millimeter scale. They just cheat. Well, they just cheat the um, sizes of the doors and the windows. Okay. And the rules of the game don't actually call for you to go inside the building. So the building is just, so this is Marvel Crisis Protocol. So even though it's a 40 millimeter game, all their terrain is set at three inch height levels, which is a 28 millimeter scale. So you can run everything from 28 to 40 millimeter on their terrain. I'm gonna have
1: to look into that, that's interesting. I know that I use, when I do my Napoleonics and I do American Civil War, it's a 15 millimeter, but I use 10 millimeter buildings simply because they look much better. Because for example, in a a war game, a scale of one figure equals 100, when you have an actual 15 millimeter building that's the 15 millimeter scale, it looks too big. So I found by going to 10 millimeter buildings, And John Hill taught me how to paint them, he taught me how to use ink to do the buildings. And they look, they work much better, I think than the actual 15 millimeter scale.
0: Well, because that's the issue is like with the skirmish, there's a one for one. But when you shrink down in sizes, you're actually moving up in body. So you're doing battalion, brigade, regimental. regimental. The game that I'm
1: getting ready to run Waterloo, um, I had to model Hougomont, And in Hougomont they have an orchard. And the orchard is about 100 yards long by about 60 yards wide. Well, in a scale of one inch equals 80 yards, that comes to about an inch and a half by an inch. (laughs) And you cannot model that in that scale. So you have to sort of build that into the Hugomont complex and say, yeah, the orchard and everything's in there, but that those three buildings surrounded by that wall, that's the whole complex. And that's what you have to do.
0: Because that's what I've seen with a lot of the medieval or Napoleon, especially the Napoleonic games of where you might have multiple like rural French villages. Right. And it's like, well, there's three buildings, that's for that village. It's just as the forces are an abstraction of a real regiment, the buildings mm-hmm. are an abstraction of a real village.
1: You have to, it's what I use in the rules I did, I use building complexes. This building has, this, this town has three sections comprised of maybe two buildings per section. Each section is fought over as a section and it makes it much easier to do and a lot easier to abstract the buildings. But it still looks pretty good. It looks like a real village.
0: Uh, we've talked about the hottie part, but something I'm interested in is that you know, once you've done this long enough, you push either, you push into a deeper. So you either start making money off your hobby, n- not a lot. Well, my other uh, co-host on the show here, Brian, he, he works at a game store and he has a side, he deals bits and cards and other, the mm-hmm. accoutrements that go <clears> with the game. And he makes a little, nice little side business of that. I've done some similar stuff in the past but you've actually done game design. So how did, why and how did you get into the game design aspect?
1: I originally got into the game design because when I wanted to play a given period and I would then buy up different rules of that given period. And being a rule snob like I really am, I'm sorry to say I found a lot of them I didn't like. So to play the period I felt that the way I wanted to do it historically, I had to learn how to write the rules. So that's how I got into game designing, and then through through John Hill, I worked with John on game designing Johnny Reb. I worked with John on game designing Across the Deadly Field, and I've done several others. I wrote the World War II rules I play. I wrote myself with the help of several other individuals who were very very knowledgeable in the period, and the Napoleonic's I wrote with the help of Matt Delamater, who. Published the original legacy of glory Napoleonic's. That this this is just a follow-on and a takeover to that. So that's sort of how I got involved. Although I don't as much like writing rules because it's a long-term, very involved, time-intensive project. I'd much rather find a set of rules I like. Like I just found a lot of the Oscar rules are out there now. Like we played Zona Alpha, simple set of rules. Big, what a hoot! Yeah, what big a great fun. Yeah,
0: that. We just that did- I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. I have to say that is probably one of the best games I could think of introducing someone because it's oh, absolutely five, five. Here's a $15 book. I'll give you five figures, yep. and you're ready to go. You can run a full.
1: Now I lay out some real. What I did in Zone Alpha, I moved it to Nevada. I said, well, <laughs> you know, something went wrong at Area 51. They seem to have been holding some aliens hostage, and the aliens try to rescue. Well, they shot down a couple flying saucers, and they crashed and rain debris all over Nevada so now we have an exclusion zone in Nevada and I laid out with the terrain map and everything else and all 25 millimeter terrain and we just have a hood playing that game and people keep their characters and and really have fun I've got like five people now that come over just to play zone alpha and it can be played in a few hours and we play a couple of games and have a great time and Osprey just came out with um Patriots and Rebels which is yes. American War of Independence. And we played our first games of that just a couple of weeks ago. And I had a wonderful time. And the simple set of rules like that, that you can play on one page back to back, you know, quick reference sheet, lend to it an enormous amount of fun of putting out terrain and putting out figures and just having a great time. So I love that. I don't like the Ray right rules. In fact, I wrote a set of ancient rules that I played for a while that I didn't like. By the time I got done with this I said these are too complicated, they're too hard to play, they take too long. And a friend of mine introduced me to the Hale Caesar rules. They're pretty good. So that's what we're playing for interest. So, so I'm not, well, I don't have to play stuff I write. I'm more than willing and want to play, you know, commercially developed sets of rules.
0: Well, did you start off modifying existing rules to get yes, what you absolutely. wanted? Okay.
1: Absolutely. And we've so, done the same with zone alpha. Not much, but a little bit. We've added, because of all the different monsters and figures we all have, we added like another 20 categories of <laughs> monsters and things you can run into in the game.
0: Well, I, I think he says that in there. I mean, the monsters are basically just a profile. Use whatever sure. you want. So, my uh, co-host, Brian, he uses penguins instead of wolves because he doesn't have <laughs> any wolves, but he has penguins. It, Why not? It's, it's funny you mentioned um, Area 51 in Las Vegas. We live near Sandia National Labs and Los Alamos National Labs.
1: Okay. So our
0: take was on it, the exclusion zone was Albuquerque because of something that happened <laughs> at the National Labs, which...
1: Why not? What yeah. a great idea. <laughs> and,
0: but I think, you know, it's a game set. You don't have to play um, Swarovsk or uh, you know, Chernobyl. You can play right. like any town you, you well, want. We
1: actually took the zone alpha rules and I, in three hours, modified them to be I call it drums along the Mohawk to be a French and Indian War scenario, a la Zona Alpha, and uh, that's kind of interesting. And it kind of worked out really well, and everybody had a great time with it. That's interesting. Modifying the set of rules, you know, one page, one one page, front and back, quick reference sheets is all you need to play the game.
0: Well, since you've done game design and you've mentioned like rule sets that are miserable to play and rule sets that are fun. You know, there's that trade-off. So Zona Alpha is a very lightweight rule set. It
1: and is you a actually a tremendous amount of fun.
0: Yeah, but there might be something of where you played a couple times, you want something crunchier. And if you're in like the Osprey line, you might move up to like Black Ops or yeah. Reality's Edge there. where In game design, where do you feel that setting the dial for granularity of the rule sets to allow you tons of options and flexibility, but you still want to make it lightweight and fast.
1: How do you make that trade-off? The older I get, the less my stamina allows me to do what I used to do at conventions, which was play all day, play half the night, drink beer, and then do that again the next day with maybe three hours of sleep. I cannot do that any longer. (laughs) My stamina for playing a game right now is about six to eight hours total time. Well that I'm fried for two days and I can't do it anymore. So, the simpler the set of rules to have a good time in my opinion now the better. Unfortunately, the Napoleonics I wrote are not simple. Although they play fairly quickly, they are a simulation and are not simple, you know, with 14 pages of charts. You cannot call that simple by any stretch of the imagination. Um I am really gravitating toward Simple, you know, one page front and back set of rules. That you can have a three to four hour great time with friends, go have dinner and maybe come back the next day and do it again. So uh. that's sort of where I'm going. And I, I'm really, Osprey has done a pretty darn good job of putting some rules out there for people and getting people into the hobby that may not have gotten into the hobby. You know, it was, when I used to go to Historicon, Con, I'd look around the room and I'd say, there's no young people here. We're all a bunch of old people. This hobby's graying. What can we do? And I think by these sets of rules like Zona Alpha, uh, Rebels and Patriots, the new one come out of Billion Suns, you're going to get young people in the hobby because they don't have to have a huge amount of outlay of money, figures, and time to do it. And that is very important, I think. Well,
0: that's, I've, I've actually recently gone back and looked at like the 15 millimeter scale. Because when you push a lot of the twelve millimeter and larger scales, the cost per miniature, especially if you have like an intellectual property that's considered valuable, like Marvel or Star Wars, right. the cost per figure. I look back and it's like, gosh, I could buy a whole company in like Ralph Partha's fifteen millimeter line of like little medieval soldiers for what I'm paying for like this one guy. Exactly, and so and
1: I, it gets expensive. It really does. Yeah, uh, so. And-
0: I was looking at, I know Warlord has moved into Epic, what they call Epic. So, of course, they couldn't pick 10 millimeter or 15 millimeter. They went like they're 13.5. But it's like, you know what? I know they're going to support a line. It's going to be plastic. um, And there's, so there's going to be game support. If they had picked Napoleonics, I'd probably have the starter box right now. Um, I wasn't interested in going back to the Civil War.
1: I don't think you're going to have too long to wait for that because... They do Napoleonics pretty heavily in their 28 millimeter scale. They do a lot of different figures and a lot of different stuff. My only drawback to doing their plastic 28 millimeter figures is you got to put the darn things together first. And unfortunately, when I thank God we use plastic cement for most of it, because when I use super glue, this is what happens, and it's not a Vulcan <laughs> scenario, it's that I've glued my finger together. So yeah, I'm I'm not the best. I and so what I do is I paint figures for friends if they'll put figures together for me. It's kind of my trade-off.
0: You know, I've um I've actually found that over time, like prepping and assembly was where I spent most of my time and then I just stalled at the painting because I saw painting as a chore.
1: Oh it's and a then... new paintings. I zone out. I can I paint now that I'm retired for the last eight years, um an average of two hours a day. Every day, you know, unless I've got some commitment that I have to be somewhere or I'm playing the game. And it's amazing how many figures you can turn out in two hours a day.
0: You know, that that's why I found once once I got serious about painting, it's where it almost flips. It's like I gotta get this guy together so I can get him on the paint table so I can get exactly. him. Exactly. And I hate
1: the part about putting them together. To me, that's just drudge work. There's no artistic in that at all. It's just God, can I do this without gluing my fingers together? I-
0: I don't know. There are even let's let's take something like Games Workshop that has a that has multiple different paint teams that handle multiple miniatures and different paint teams. I've even some like some of their best painters. I'll look at a model that they painted and said, they left the mold line on. I can see the mold line right there. And then come
1: You're a snob. You know, you're, you're there. You're
0: there. You know, I <laughs> my my wife looks at me when I like she hates mold lines, but she won't do anything. So I I sit there and say, "There's a mold line underneath his armpit. Got to get it out. Like, no one's <laughs> even gonna see." It. <laughs>
1: you know, I, I'm not quite that bad yet. I I'll, I will accept a lot of things, but like when I moved out here to Vegas, Vegas has a large community of gamers out here, which I didn't really? know until I got here. And they play probably club games twice a month, where they get together in a in a local store, which has not been happening much anymore right now but um they'll get the art a person's house and they'll do club games twice a month and then in between there other people run games and i have a friend of mine that lives uh about two hours away from here in uh in arizona and they play games out here that i've never played they play um, warhammer 40k they play BattleTech. so because they do that a lot i ended up buying an army of uh, warhammer 40k from a guy and buying a bunch of BattleTech figures you know, just so I could get involved and play some of the games out here and found out that I really like it. It's a lot of fun.
0: Well, you know that, so this is a debate Brian and I have had pre- on previous episodes of where what the owner of the local game store is interested in really drives what all the war gamers are interested in. If you're, because you need like, you need like a critical mass in the community to Absolutely get regular, regular games and you need a champion. And normally it's. The actual store owner, because he's trying to move product to pay for you know square footage. That's actually not
1: the case out here. Um, we've got a guy out here, and his father lives in Albuquerque in your area. Guy's name is Jason Coffee out here. And Jason is probably the driving factor behind the Las Vegas uh Southern Nevada War Game Group. And he's the one that organizes a lot of the games and does a lot and has a huge amount of figures i don't know if he's got as much as i do but he's close and through him i've gotten involved in some different gaming now we have two game shops out here one is little shop of magic and the other is war games war games I think it's called war games and they both before covid held games constantly had tables for gamers to play and you could go in there and just do pickup games you know and show up you know and the owner oh sure yeah table five in the back oh you can have it today or you could schedule the game. And I'm hoping when you know COVID runs its course to a certain extent, we can get back to that, because I miss that. And that really helps the gaming. That's how I first got involved with the gamers out here, was I went to the War Game Store and said, anybody come here to play games? He said, well, the historical guys show up on Tuesday night. So I showed up on Tuesday night, and voila, I'm into the gaming group.
0: Wait, you know, uh, something I appreciate about moving out west is um... So in the D.C. area, game stores inside the Beltway were non-existent. They, they because, are
1: non-existent hardly.
0: Yeah, so they were only outside the Beltway. So the biggest store I ever found was in Annapolis. The other places are um, I know the up in Ashburn. Um, right. Or you might have to go out to Glen Burnie near Baltimore. But well, I lived it was, in
1: Ashburn, so it was easy to go to yeah,
0: that But it, I'll tell you what, if you live in Southern Maryland, St. Mary's, or Prince George's County – um, there is nobody. For there's nothing there. <laughs> you no. you pick a direction, you're going to be driving for a while to get anywhere because you know a six foot by four has become like the standard wargaming table. Now, Games workshops try to disrupt that and play right. around with some of the sizes. But no matter what, every store who's out there, if you want to run bolt action, any of the flames of war, there's they're still time to the six by four uh, table. And so right. that requires a store to have more than one of them. So, like, the type of situation you're calling for, it's like, that requires a dedication to uh, square footage.
1: Now, the Little Shop of Magic out here does a phenomenal job. They've got, like, 15 tables that they can run games on. You know, the store's huge, and he's got a good selection. And granted, you know, it's, I always tell people, you know, support your local game store as much as you possibly can. Yeah, anybody can get it online. You can order it in order, it. but if they've got it at the local store, you know, buy, it, buy it there because this guy's providing us a service that I, I'm missing now that it's not there because he's not able to hold games there because of COVID. And I really miss that. And I would not like to see that go away. We actually had a game store here go out of business where we played there. He had like seven or eight tables in that. We sorely missed that after he went out of business.
0: Yeah, I know um, here there's basically you can divide the city into three parts. And there's a game store in each part and each one has a different focus, but it, it, so COVID had made the store with the largest gaming area. That gaming space had become a liability.
1: Yeah. that's you're not being still... used for anything.
0: So like the store that was in between because hobbying has become huge and board games become huge. They had a small enough gaming space, but still big enough that they could just put, turn that into stock space. Okay. So it's like, okay, well, we're moving more products. So I need to make bigger orders so I can turn my gaming space, which no one can use into stock space. Or the oh, other stores, it's like I've got gaming space. So they had do big D and D the D and D fifth edition, like adventure league Friday, Saturday nights, they pack that store. I think if the fire marshal ever went in there on one of those <laughs> nights, it, it might be an issue. But even with wargaming, it's like the D&D people want to gather there. So I, I've seen them. I think they'd take your tables and knock your stock on the floor and like start playing. They're a pretty rowdy group there. You um, know,
1: I've seen the guys that do the magic cards, the magic game, the card game. And the game store will have a day that that's just what they do. And they'll put they'll have 150, 200 people in there playing magic together. Not something I ever got interested in, but. It's interesting to see people in there doing it.
0: Well, you know, I, you know, anything that keeps the store open,
1: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and anything keeps the hobby going. That's why I'm so thrilled with some of the stuff Osprey's putting out here. That I think this is phenomenally good for the hobby.
0: You know, let me let me ask you about this because this is something we've talked about. Is sometimes uh, f- fatigue with a certain product line okay. or a certain era. Um, how do you know when to exit?
1: When you get tired of doing it, when it becomes boring, when you don't, when you do not get excited to play a game. For example, I'm excited about Waterloo coming up on April the 10th and putting everything together for it, and getting it ready, <clears throat> excuse me, and having some friends drive in from California to play it. But you know that's a lot of effort to do for a game and I have to be excited and want to do it. And when I get bored of something and I get tired of doing it, I just move on to something else. And then I'll circle back, you know, and play that again when I get excited about it again.
0: Now, do you liquidate your collection? Because that's what, oh, Brian, I'm, God. okay. So I'm a saver. So Even if I'm not using it, it just goes into a box and
1: yeah. it gets
0: stored for later. He exits out completely.
1: Well, so that they can like... get expensive and get to be pretty time intensive if you want to get back in it. Yeah, I, um, I, I don't get rid of anything except lately I am selling off some Napoleonics just because I have to. And, and the wife says, Well, what are you doing with the money? Buying more miniatures? Yeah, it's like it feeds,
0: <laughs> it feeds itself. It's, it. Well, so let me ask you have you ever gotten tired of a company or a game system? Because normally the way they make money is by getting you to buy new stuff. And so it's like buying expansions, buying the next, you know. Now, Napoleonics, you could go on forever because, you know, the buttons change over the decades and like Correct. little, I'm going to wear my hat sideways. Now I'm going to wear it front to back, depending on the fashion of the time. So you could get away with that, but do you ever get I, tired of that?
1: Um, I don't know if tired is the right word to use. For example, let's take Warhammer 40K. Um, if I was starting out right now, to go out and buy all the stuff I needed to play, let's say the Death Guard in Warhammer 40k. That would get expensive. The cost of these figures has gone up dramatically over the years. And I think that sometimes the companies get to be a little bit fanatical, like if they have a tournament, you can only use our figures that we produce in the tournament and you can't modify any or have created some of the ones on your own, which I like to do, and use those in a tournament. Not that I like to play tournaments, by any stretch of the imagination. But I got a little tired, excuse me, my cat, I got a little tired of that, of doing that. Yeah, in that, in that respect, maybe I got a little tired of that. But as far as playing the games of different periods, I haven't played English Civil War for a very long time uh, in miniature. and I don't really have a huge desire to do it because we played that through college for four years almost because that's all we had, and I didn't. I haven't played much since then. I played a little bit, so I guess in that respect, you could say maybe I get tired of playing that period.
0: But that's well, so, the, that's I can think of. So the one I was thinking about was you know Warhammer is well known that you are going to buy supplements and new editions. Oh, at Infinite. the new edition
1: just came out. And of and course, we all had to every, go out and buy the ninth edition. Yep.
0: And every three years. I think we figured out every three years, they're going to change editions, and you're going to have to buy all the books again. Actually. But they're... It's the
1: way they make money and stay in business. I don't have any problem with that.
0: You know, and you know, you kind of wish that um, Battletech had done that a little bit more after the clan invasion. That way they could have stayed in business and, you know, kept I'll going. Battletech's
1: making a resurgence, at least out here.
0: Well, um, and out here, because the store owners... So Battletech has been reborn, but there was a dark period there uh, where the game died, essentially. And now it's being resurrected because people got tired of buying this stuff. Like they had their 3025 stuff, their 3028. The clan invasion was very unpopular. And so people got, well, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do clan. I'm not going to do Dark Mm -hmm. Ages.
1: Well, you still have that. You have people out here that they want to play Liao. And that's all they want to play in their side. And me, I don't care. I've got about, I don't know, maybe 80 max, give or take. And I don't plan on getting any more because everybody and his mother out here has got these, a friend of mine's got 1500 max. Yes.
0: <laughs> when, and they should all be painted the green. Of the first Federated Suns armored guard. And that's just the way it has to be. And I mean, it
1: all in the right things. And I don't know that much about the Battletech universe because I just got involved. I didn't play Battletech back in the days when it oh, was okay.
0: like,
1: So I've just gotten into it since I've gotten here to Vegas. So I don't, you know, I've heard people tell me stories about it. But in fact, they just had a, a club game just this past Saturday, which I couldn't make, where they did Battletech and they did Clan Invasion. And everybody had a great time. And They've got me hooked on it out here, so I'll play it. I enjoy it. I love getting shot in
0: the head <laughs> with, it, with, with, with an AC20. Co- cockpit shot.
1: <laughs> well, that's over. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I think we could go go on for a couple more hours, but you know, I don't think we've discussed everything we can. Are you up to being re-interviewed I'm into good. the future? I'm good. i would love to know how I'm your very Waterloo. Very I'd love to know how your Waterloo game I'll take turned a lot of that. pictures
1: of it. I'll send you some pictures of some of my other boards. I don't know which ones I sent you. I don't remember. As I said, getting old the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tough. Um, I'll send you some pictures of some of my other boards. I've got them all on my phone. I'll just, you know, send them off to you. And, you know, I can just text you. It's pretty good. And um, yeah, Waterloo's gonna be fun. And the people playing the game, Barry Jacobson is one of the gentlemen in the game, and he does on Facebook, the military history page. Tremendous historian. He's done a lot of stuff at Hollywood where they did, um, and I'm gonna screw the name up. He was involved in some of the shows where they did where They'd say, okay, we're gonna take a gladiator and have him fight a Spartan. And he had like a show where they'd do all these different things of that. He was involved in that. He's a tremendous historian and probably knows more about most periods except Napoleonics um, <laughs> than I do. You know, and I did, he was in the Society for Creative Anachronism, so he did a lot of work with fighting, and like he got very good, because I was also. And I did, you know, Russian World War II reenacting, you know, go out there and, 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 and kill Germans and have a great time, but I'm getting a little too old for that, so i got to put <laughs> stuff around the table now.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, Bob, I'd like to thank you for being on the podcast oh, here it. with it's us. Fun. Alright, well thank you for joining us at Miniature Wargaming Labs, and we'll see you next time.